0: We're going to start again. We've worked so much today, that's awful, I'm sorry. You know, I'm talking about inequalities and that's almost like forced labor, but we have a lot of work to do, we'll see, we'll see. Thank you, thank you for coming back. You're very patient. I'd like to show you something As you can see, there's a slowdown in terms of the increase, the relative supply of skilled labour. There was an acceleration in demand, but then deceleration on the side of supply of skilled labour. So that is why we've had more inequalities at large. At large, and we mean at large in the US, inequalities at large. So this was to explain the increase in inequalities in the US at large. So international trade, deunionization, and also skilled bias, technical change and a slowdown in terms of supply skilled labour. Those are the main reasons to explain wage inequalities in the US. And many have said that this has led to an increase in debts, loans taken by households. And therefore, there was a major cost in the US, that is the crisis, the crisis, due to the loans that people had taken, the credits. Now, I'd like to talk about something else. We've talked about different ways of measuring inequalities, global and Gini index, ninety ten, et 10, etc. And I also mentioned inequalities at the highest level, the top one, uh, that is Piketty says, and Atkinson have shown that these types of inequalities have increased since the 1980s. What I'd like to show you now is the following. That is, I'd like to say that since we have such inequalities, we have to fight against this in an indiscriminated manner. But I'm saying, no, no, slow down. I'd like to show you this. There's the red curve here. Red is the fraction of income in the US in the hands of the top 1%. Okay. And that's been increasing since the 80s. And then in grey, what we have is the number of patents uh, per capita. That is intensity of innovation in the US. And there's an incredible trend look at these trends, they're parallel inequalities at the top and also uh, the patents. We were surprised and we thought, is there a causal link? And we thought, yeah, we managed to show that there's a causal link from innovation to the top 1%. That is, innovation is a source uh, uh, of increase for the top 1%. Innovation accelerated in the US and, well, of course, it doesn't mean that the one who belong to the top 1% are innovators. No, you have some people who get a steady rent from innovation or income. They have hotels, etc. I have nothing against hotels. And then all of a sudden they benefit from innovation elsewhere and then their income will increase a lot. They didn't invent. People speculate. There are all types of things you can do uh, if you're in the top 1%. And, you know, now I have an enemy, but I like to make this comparison. I'm saying that Steve Jobs is not Carlos Slim. You know, I'm saying that Carlos Slim, well, he did a lot of things. I'm not fair. I know I'm not fair. But in Mexico, he took advantage of the privatisation of uh, Telmex, the telecom company, you know, Salinas. I know this story very well. And he had this non-regulated private monopoly and Salinas had uh, uh, a a stake in that company. I know them well. I know them well. I know the story. I'm not going to tell you the story of my life, but then all of a sudden, I was married. I was married at the time with someone from Mexico. Anyway, I didn't divorce due to the cost of communication. No, 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 That's not the reason. Anyway, these things happen in life. Now we're good friends, but, uh, and what happened is that the price of communications in Mexico was a lot higher than elsewhere. And that was for Mr. Slim, so different from Mr. Steve Jobs, different from others. And I thought, there are different sources and reasons for the top 1% to be that wealthy. So, if we want to fight against the top 1%, who is the target and why do we want to do this? That's something to remember. So, innovation, what I showed when I work with these authors, my point was to say there's a link between innovation and the top 1%. The reason is that innovation is going to give you rents to innovation or income from innovation. I'm not saying we shouldn't tax them. You know, there's an article, a paper from a colleague who said, you know, I am in favor of a progressive taxation. Yeah, but, you know, income from innovation is different from income from uh, something that's safe. You know. What's good about innovation? You know, Casa Slim is different. You had a monopoly and there were uh, entry barriers, okay? Had other telcos gone to Mexico, he wouldn't have been that rich. There's a difference, as I was saying, between innovation and entry barriers. Innovation creates growth, which is what we saw before. Innovation is the main source for growth in developed countries. That's good. It's going to give you growth and Innovation leads to inequalities. That's true, but for a while, only for a while, because afterwards others imitate you and you're going to uh, lose your income from innovation or rents from innovation. That's due to creative destruction, which means that the rents that you get from innovation will not last. And this is what I'm going to show right now on this table. It's easy to understand. This is the one, that's the link. Okay. Maybe you're, you're going to say, I'm cheating. But anyway, with all of these dots, but there's strong correlation. I've taken mobility measuring from Chetty and size, their way of measuring social mobility. And what I saw is that where we have the highest level of innovation in the US, this is where we have the highest level of social mobility, California, Massachusetts, etc. which means that innovation goes hand in hand with social mobility. Whereas entry barriers reduce social mobility and will not help you increase growth. And there's something else as well, which is this, this, this slide, which says the following thing. It says here we have American states that have been rated its state years, right? These are the years or places where we have the lowest level in innovation and on the right, the highest level of innovation. Look at the intensity of innovation and the top 1%. Here again, here again, the more you innovate, the higher the top 1%. But then if you look at the link between innovation, intensity and Gini, that's Gini 99. That is remove top 1% and keep the rest. Look at this. There's no relation, no link. That is innovation is incredible. It's not connected per se to inequality at large. So more innovation will increase your top 1%. Of course, that's one source for the top 1%. But also it increases social mobility it doesn't increase uh, inequalities at large. That's interesting. So innovation, I'll take it. But what about Mr. Sleem? I can tell you that Gini increases with him increases. And then less social mobility and uh, less growth. I don't want that. I'm not going to take that. That's my view compared to Piketty and others. For them, the top 1% is only people who get rents from innovation. Uh, Well, you know, they have read Balzac, but they have not read The Lost Illusions because one third of the book is on innovation in printing in Angoulême. He would have seen the word innovation, innovation, innovation. Now, let me show you other slides i don't want to bother you with that so let me see where part two is okay display full screen three tables three tables this one's very interesting what we're looking at here is sweden sweden's very interesting That's for the top 1% income share versus innovation. Look at how it increased since the 1990s. That's patents per capita. It didn't really increase up to the 1990s, and then it started increasing because they rolled out reforms in Sweden, that supported innovation. I'd like France to do the same. I'm not saying we should copy Sweden. Sometimes Sweden failed, for instance, with education. They had a system like Finland that they stopped, but they reformed the state and taxation systems. And it really worked. What's interesting is these patents. Look at how they increased very steadily from the 1990s onward. What's interesting is the Gini coefficient in Sweden it didn't really budge. Since uh, the 90s, it's not really increased. So the top 1% have increased, but their productivity growth has increased. Innovation rates uh, has increased, but the genie has not changed. These reforms? Yes, I'll take it. I'll take it. Give me a reform where I'm not going to increase inequalities at large. I'm not going to reduce social mobility, even though the top 1% is going to increase and more growth. Yes, I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll embrace it. Others will say no, the top 1% will increase. I don't want this. This is the debate, the debate that we have within the left wing uh, parties in France, the reformists and those who are not. Anyway, this is something that is interesting. And also this, let me show you this, this and something else. Those are tables on mobility. This is how we can measure social mobility. The likelihood of your child being in the top quintile when your parents are in the lowest quintile, that's another measurement system. Expected income for the child if you are in the lowest quartile and everything is correlated with innovation. Social mobility and Innovation are strongly correlated. and also the, the entrants, the newcomers, the entrants, the newcomers, innovation is in their hands, correlated with social mobility. It's not really uh, innovation in the hands of the incumbents. So innovation is the new ones replacing the old ones, that's social mobility. And therefore what about entry barriers? Well, they're going to increase the drop one percent. But then there's going to be less social mobility. So who's the richest person in Sweden? It's Mr. Skype. Okay, he didn't exist 20 years ago, Mr. Skype. Uh, We had the Wallenbergs mainly. Anyway, Mr. Skype now is very rich, thanks to Skype. You know, I've said Skype so many times this morning, but it didn't didn't work this morning. Anyway, what people are afraid of is that, you know, in Sweden, genie didn't go up, mobility didn't go down. Is that a problem, if Mr. Skype is rich? No, no problem. The only fear I have is that Mr. Skype might use his money to become Carlos Slim. That is, more entry barriers. And that's a problem. Taxation is a lever, but you can also use the antitrust policy. That's very useful. It's efficient. Another concern is that maybe Mr. Skype can... uh, by politicians. In the US, there's a judgment from the Supreme Court and now private companies can give funds to politicians. That's awful. We don't have this in Sweden. We don't have this in France. It's highly regulated. So it's more general than just fiscal reforms. We need to have a good taxation to make a difference from the top 1% based on innovation and the top 1% that's based on rents from innovation. So we want something that's redistributive, but also incentive. So taxation is one of the levers we can use to fight against this danger that is the top 1%. And you can do this with antitrust policies and also you can regulate political campaigns. You have to look at things in a broader way. And this is my view that I uh, always fight for based on these papers. Now, I don't want to be too long, but I studied this in Finland, in Finland, in Finland, I managed to get individual data and these data are very interesting. I can track people. I know their individual income. I know if they have filed any patents. So the inventors in Finland are people who have filed uh, a patent at the USPTO, the good patents, the bad ones. Well, forget about them in the US or I mean in Japan or Europe. This is where usually people file their patents. They're very good agencies. Now, what we have is the inventors here, the inventors in Finland, someone who have at least produced one patent filed in the US between 1990 and 1999. And the non-inventors are those who've not submitted any patents. Look at wage income growth for those who've innovated it's higher than those who've not innovated or uh, patented anything. So that's the social ladder effect. The orange curve is always above the blue curve with the initial income being the same. And it's even more, if you look at the distribution of initial income, look at inventors with the same initial income, they're going to take this social ladder and go up a lot more if they innovate those are individual data innovation is going to help you go up the social ladder so social mobility and that's capital versus labor income so that's capital versus labor income those who've invented and the non-inventors and that's income between inventors and non-inventors so inventors earn more more income from capital than labour. That's something to remember, to look at all the details. And I'd like to share a figure with you before we continue with something else. 4.5, 4.5. That means were you in the top one or top 10% in the 1990s? Will you be in the top 10 in 1999? And 4.5 is the likelihood of someone who is not in the top 10, an inventor who is not in the top 10 in 1990 to be in the top 10 in 1999. The likelihood will increase if you're an inventor. That is, when you invent something, this is something that's going to help you go up the social ladder. These are individual data that we've tracked. Someone who's innovated will go up the social ladder faster, but someone who's not innovated will not Uh, be mobile socially so we've done that now at individual level, we did this before at state level or municipality level so innovation as a driving force it's uh, okay that's top income uh, uh, but also it's a driving force for social mobility, some people are coughing, so okay, now immediately we're going to move to the third part, third part, but you're not coughing too much, so that's good and finally finally, and Oops, sorry, another mistake of mine. Part three. And that truly is part three. That's three. The real three. The three three. Right. Slideshow. Growth policies. Now, we've talked about many, many things. We've been together for one and a half hours. We know how to measure inequalities. We now know that... Uh, We can explain inequalities at large, an increase in inequalities. And this is explained by the uh, skilled bias technical change and inequalities for the top one or top ten. One of the reasons is innovation. It's not the only factor, but it's very important because it doesn't have the same impact on the different inequality measures. That's why I bothered you with the different inequality measures, because innovation is not going to affect inequality at large and inequality for the top one or top 10 at the same way. No increase in inequalities at large and it increases social mobility. So it's always very important to make the difference. You know, When some people talk about inequalities, you can calm them down. You'll say, calm them down. You'll say something like, okay, slow down, honey. How do you measure inequalities? You can tell them that. You can tell them that. Yet, I wanted to say a few words about Kuznets again. I still have 30 minutes or more. I wanted to pay tribute to Kuznets for the following scene. You know, he said that there's this uh, rural transition from rural to urban, but, you know, it's worked until the 80s. Yet, I'd like to pay him a tribute because, you know, he was wrong because he thought there's just this one transition once and for all going from rural economy to urban economy. But then, you know, my answer to him is to say, no, each time you have a new technological wave, you're going to go through a new Kuznets cycle. See what I mean? So you're not totally wrong. But rather than having just one wave, one transition from rural economies to urban economies, each time you have a transition, you'll have the same phenomenon the one that you saw before. I'm going to save Kuznet, you know, saving him. So you should never despair. Maybe you're not totally right, but then you're right anyhow, as far as the substance of things uh, are concerned. Everybody's going to be happy for harmony, etc. Then, inclusive growth policies. Everybody wants that. Everybody claims they want that. All political leaders say, I want growth. I want growth for everybody. What we can say is look at this this way. That is, let's have a look at impacts of inequality on growth. And I was at the IMF, and at the IMF, people do this. They look at growth on the one hand, and on the other hand, the Gini index. They couldn't see anything, which is normal. It's so complicated. You see, inequalities are incentive, if I can say. Perfect inequalities, no, nobody wants to work. You need a a small level of inequalities because otherwise people will not want to work. Of course, people should work because they love working, but it's not the truth. We know that incentive measures play a role. If everybody has the same level of income, irrespective of their efforts and results, then people will not work. Therefore, you need, in this case, uh, the Stalin approach, with the nout that he would use, the whip. No, anyway, but this is how it works. So inequalities have this incentive dimension. They push people to work, but it has its own drawbacks as well. Because, you know, there's all types of inequalities. If you work in a country, like in the US, and if you want to go to university, then you need a lot of money. And if you're poor, you can't take a loan. You can't have a loan from the bank. You can't go to university. So your opportunities are limited. You might be smart, but you can't go to university. You can't continue with your projects because you're constrained. You don't have enough money. So the combination of initial wealth inequalities and credit constraints that are such that some people are smart, they could have gone to university, but they can't. That's one of the drawbacks, inequalities in, in opportunities. That's one of the problems with inequality. That's not what you want. Well, maybe for growth, it's not really a big problem. Only rich people will invest. But please remember the decreasing returns when you accumulate capital. If just one person invested everywhere, uh, this person would have uh, decreasing uh, returns. So the best thing is to have other people who could invest more, but the others don't have the money. So that's why it's very important to distribute money. We combine credit constraints, inequalities and decreasing returns... Uh, compared to each individual investment. Therefore, for growth, it's always good to redistribute. Because if it's just one person who redistributes, uh, then after a certain while, you have decreasing returns. If you have a company, you can't control everything. It's the same. You have to share with others. And there's another reason why too, too much inequality is bad for growth, is cooperation. For instance, go to Colombia. Colombia is a state that has tried to imitate France, but it's totally different from France. It looks like France. If you look at their legal system, civil law, etc. you have the impression you're in France, but then you will see that it's a different story if you study this in depth. Now, let's say you're in Bogota. People will say, if you go there, people will steal whatever you have, because if you're poor in Colombia, what are you going to do? You will never manage to get any type of education. If you're honest, you will not earn much. But if you steal, if you rob, you'll have a lot of money. So there are many inequalities in the country, and therefore more and more people perhaps consider illegal activities. And redistribution is forced. The state will not redistribute wealth. So there are reports that show that in the countries where there's a high level of inequalities, there's more violence, there are crimes... And there's a lack of cooperation, which means that all of this will harm growth. We know that extreme inequalities are not good. That is, genie equals one, more or less, or a big poverty trap. This is not good for growth. So effects of inequalities on growth. It's like saying it goes in all directions. You can't conclude anything if you say that because there are effects in different directions, the ones I've just mentioned. And of course, reports were written up, I've worked on that, many other people have worked on that, on these effects, Alizina and others, on inequalities as a source of violence, Roderick, Alizina, and I've worked as well on the credit uh, markets, loan markets with decreasing individual returns. Anyway, I'm summing up everything, but there's literature on contradictory effects of inequalities on growth. And, uh, by the way, empirical studies do not highlight systematic effects. All of this is mixed like a Russian salad, as we say. Look at effects of inequalities on growth. You can't see anything. You need, therefore, to consider another type of approach, a useful approach to reconcile growth and a correct control over inequalities, which is to say, What are the levers you can use to grow in advanced countries? Well, in advanced countries, the growth levers are, well, we know that. We know that. Reports have shown that first it's education and higher education. I talked about this at length. You know that now. And then I talked about a competitive market. You know this as well. And the labor market has to be dynamic. It's important. We know that growth economy in advanced countries is based on innovation, that is creative destruction, which means that easily you have to be able to easily hire people and lay off people. You need to have such labor markets. And also you have to have safe income and vocational training that we don't really have here in France. And also there are other aspects macroeconomic stabilisation. Throughout the economic cycles, it's very important for companies to be able to continue and invest in innovation. So if there's macroeconomic instability, they will no longer be able to invest. And you need to have a positive tax policy that will not discourage innovation. We know that these are levers, levers for growth in developed countries. Now, this is what we can do. We can say, Rather than saying that there's a link between growth and inequalities, we could say, let's have a look at each and every single lever and look at their impact on the different uh, inequalities that we've measured. Okay? let's start with education. With education, it's really good because you can do whatever you want. The outcome can be the one you want. For instance, this is education measured on the basis of PISA tests. The countries on the right have had good PISA tests. We've talked about this, you know what they measure. Anyway, we looked at this table last time. And we know that growth is connected to the education level, but also the education level is connected to something else. This is the first level. You'll see the impact of this on inequalities, but we know that education is good for your growth. What we also know is that if you're close to the technological frontier, for instance, an American state, close to technological frontier, has a good level of education, higher education. Well, you know that as well. You know, this is what we discussed last time. These are growth levers, education and higher education. Competition as well. You probably remember this slide. The blue companies are close to the technological frontier. The ones that are red are far away. And we know that competition is good for growth in companies that are close to the frontier. The most advanced countries have more blue companies than red firms. The more advanced you are, uh, the more you have competition, which is good for growth. That's a bit of a a refresher course. It's the same for the labor market. And that's interesting as well. That's macroeconomics. I like this slide. I like it. That's against those who say we don't need uh, structural reforms. That's more Con- uh, counter cyclical policies quantitative easing draghi's policies it has more impact on growth when you have a goods and service market that's more liberalized compared to a rigid market so complementarity between structural reforms and macroeconomic policies that are flexible this is what's good for growth i've not yet talked about inequalities now now let's talk about inequalities education higher education number 1 Markets for goods and services, number two. Labour market, three. And macro uh, c- uh, countercyclical policies, number four. Combined with the goods market, which is good for growth. These four are really good. And of course, there's taxation, which is good for innovation. So, let's have a look at impact on social mobility of schooling. Back to what we saw before, Mr. Chetty's uh, tables. As you can see, when we have more social mobility is where We have, as you can see, the best scores. That's equivalent of visa tests. When you have the best visa test, you have higher social mobility, which means that if you have a good educational system, like in Finland, with good teachers, mentoring, plus universities accessible to all, it's good for growth, but also it's good for your social mobility. It's a win-win, a win-win. I'll take it, I'll take it, I'll take it. I'll embrace this idea. More growth, social mobility, education, higher education. I'll take it, I'll take it. Now, what about flex security on the labor market? Flex security, that's my expression. Look at this. What we have here is uh, social mobility and the difference between rich and poor parents and their children. That's social mobility. Um, On the X axis, we have the turnover level. You know, as I said before, jobs are created and destroyed. This is the turnover I'm measuring as well, to see if the labour market is quite dynamic. That is how jobs are created and destroyed. There's positive correlation. Look at the places where we have more job turnover. That's where you have more social mobility. That's also interesting. mobility has to be well organized. If you have good vocational training, if you have good compensation and benefits for those who are unemployed and you train them, then your relation is going to be even more positive. That is the link between turnover and job mobility. So policies have a role to play. They must play a role. You need to have good vocational training. And also that's true because labor mobility is compatible with social mobility. So in the US, It's not the Danish uh, model, yet it's the case. Where you have more social mobility, you have more social mobility. And that's interesting. That's the labor market. And now goods and services, that's uh, competitive markets. That's where you have uh, many companies that are created and that are destroyed, right? Ins and outs on the company markets. Now, when you have quite a high level of turnover for companies, that's where you have the highest level of social mobility, which is good news as well, which shows that education, and higher education is good for growth, good for social mobility. Uh, Markets for goods and services that are dynamic, it's good for innovation, it's good for growth, it's good for social uh, mobility. Uh, A a dynamic labour market that's good for growth, that's good for social uh, mobility. And now we'll be talking about macro stabilization. What this shows is that look at these countries, The countries where you have more macroeconomic volatility, then you have more inequalities. We know that. Inflation, hyperinflation is going to hit the poorest first. We know that. Therefore, anything you can do to reduce macroeconomic volatility or to address it will reduce mobility. Therefore, you have automatic stabilizers for individuals, but also automatic stabilizers for companies. All of this means that you ought to stimulate, enhance growth and reduce uh, inequalities. But then look at this figure as well. Now, who's going to suffer most during a recession? Well, look at this uh, effect of state unemployment rate on group employment rate in the US. If you look at unemployment figures in the state, the ones who suffer most are the youth in the US. Youth suffer more. If you have a lot of unemployed people in a given state in the U.S., when you have a major recession, it really is awful for the youth. They're going to be hit first, so to the detriment of the youth. These are other categories. Now that's the unemployment rate of a given group, and you know before we we're looking at something below zero, but now these are unemployment rates. So. Effect of state unemployment rate on group unemployment rates, right? That is, subgroups of people in a given state. The ones who are hit more severely are the black males and less than high school. Black males, African American men, and individuals who've not finished their high school education, those who are unskilled, they suffer first. This is what we said before, it's exacerbated when there's a recession. So anything that can stabilize your economies is good. We know that for growth, because then companies will still invest in R&D and will innovate throughout their cycles. And it's also good to reduce inequalities in a given population group. Now, that's what you want. And then taxation, the taxation policies, well, my philosophy about taxes is to say, okay, look at what happened in Sweden. Well, up to the 90s, they had a system with almost 90% being the maximum taxation level, and they were taxing Uh, capital as much as labour. And then in the 70s, the Swedes said, we're going to reduce the maximum level down to 57%. That's for labour income. And capital income will be taxed up to a level of 30%. They deployed their reform. It was a radical reform. Now, to do this and to be credible, they had to cut on a number of expenditures. uh, And therefore, they worked on that, which is what France has not yet done. And they... uh, protected good schooling and uh, health systems and a good uh, level of benefits for those who are unemployed, but they bolstered innovation growth in Sweden and growth increased fourfold. uh, Productivity growth in Sweden before the 90s and after the 90s, multiplied by a ratio of four. Their growth rate was 0.7 And then they went up to 2.8 or 3%. That's their growth rate in Sweden. Incredible. And as I said before, they didn't increase their Gini index. They didn't reduce social mobility. Well, of course, the top 1% increased as well in Sweden, but not to the detriment of social mobility. Not to the detriment, or I mean, this didn't increase inequality. So they conducted all of these reforms. Some of them were not really good. For instance, the education reform, they didn't do that. They should have kept the old system. But they showed that we can have reforms in a country that support growth. And yet you can keep the inclusive dimension of these reforms. This is what is possible. They wanted redistributive uh, taxation that wouldn't discourage innovation. That would make a difference between uh, the good sources and bad sources of top inequality. Innovation is different from the rest. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't tax innovators. We have to tax everybody. But uh, you have to have different approaches Uh, between uh, the taxation system of properties or of good. You need to have a smart reform for your state and for your taxation system. And this is usually what's missing. All those who think about fiscal reforms don't look at what's done elsewhere to understand why it worked somewhere else. This is what we should do. This is a good idea. You know, when I talked about the uh, university reforms, I talked about good systems elsewhere. In other countries, we looked at the Shanghai tests or ratings or citations given, patents as well for universities in different countries. We try and understand where it works well. We talked about autonomy, etc. And I think that whenever you have a reform, I'm not saying you should copy anybody else, but what's very important is to have your benchmarking to look at what's happening elsewhere and then to have more micro-studies, which is what we do between the states in America or the regions in France, to see if these international comparisons have been mirrored at a micro-level. If it's the case, then that's a good uh, idea for you. You can think about reforms, you know, because the taxation reform is what's the objective? What's the objective? Why do you want to change your taxation system? Well, you want more redistribution of wealth. You don't want to have a society with more inequalities. There are major drawbacks and that's not something you want uh, from the ethical point of view. So you want to have redistribution of wealth, but you want to also tax people because you want to have good public services. Look at Sweden. When they reduced uh their taxation level, then the taxable income of people went up. Uh, That is too much taxation will kill taxation, as we say. People worked more, people worked more, more and harder. And therefore, they now have... A higher taxable income it's increased in sweden after the uh, taxation reform it didn't decrease so they were able to finance uh, schooling health universities the labor market etc and what you want is a taxation system that's not going to discourage those who innovate that's uh, uh, going to lead you to growth that's what you have to think about when you're thinking about taxation reform. You're, you have to think about your objective. What's your objective? And how can you attain your target if you use different instruments, like smart taxation systems, but also good competitive policies, etc. and other institutional changes, and therefore the top 1% will not have a negative impact on the system if they buy them out. It's not good to have the media in the hands of the happy few. It's very important to share the media, for instance. We can do all these things because otherwise it's dangerous. We want to avoid these dangers. And also there's this debate about the minimum wage. Minimum wage, that's very interesting. Minimum wage has decreased, that's for the United States. It decreased, as I said before. Uh, uh, due to deunionization and in the UK as well. But anyway, uh, where should the best level be for minimum wage? The debate is as follows. If you start with zero minimum wage, well, increasing minimum wage will lead to a decrease in inequalities. You know, when Obama says we have to increase minimum wage, that's good. When Tony Blair says we have to increase this, well, that's good. It's going to reduce inequalities in these countries. It was so low, so low. They had lost so much in purchasing power with Thatcher and Regan. But then if it increases faster than productivity, if minimum wage uh, increase too quickly, you compress the distribution of wages. And therefore, it can discourage hiring policies. And then you have more inequalities. It's interesting, if we were to draw a plot that horizontally, minimum wage and vertically inequalities, you would see that it would be like this again a reversed U-shaped curve, that is, if you increase too much, then you increase inequalities, because then you reduce hiring and more inequalities between those who have a job and those who don't which means that you have to have other instruments to fight against poverty. In France, we had the RSA or PPE, that is minimum solidarity income and support to employers. We need to use these instruments. Minimum wages is something very important. You shouldn't lower this. You should increase it, but uh, you should modulate this. It all depends on your regions, the cost of housing and accommodation. In Sweden, it's negotiated in the different industries and regions, which is good. And you should also use other levers, an instrument to fight against poverty. So there's a whole debate on this, on the role of minimum wages. It's very important how to modulate this, how to renegotiate this. Should it be the only instrument that you're going to use to fight against poverty? Or should you use other instruments as well that you can use in addition to the minimum wage? This is a very important debate. But of course, we would go too far if we were to start now. So I'll stop now. Thank you very much.